Ben Hopkins is a pianist and doctoral candidate at the University of British Columbia. His research examines the different ways in which classical musicians can engage in political musical activity through their choice of programming, their use of public platforms, and their con- commissioning of new pieces. He joins me in conversation to discuss not only the intersection of politics and music in the past, but the vital need for the creation and programming of socially conscious music today. Welcome, Ben. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Um, of course. I'm pretty good, I've got to say. Ben, we're, we're going to touch on some uh, potentially sensitive uh, topics. Um, we both feel, and correct me if, I'm, if ever I'm wrong, we both feel that these are things that that need to be discussed, that there needs to be discourse in a logical and um, uh, sensitive platform. Um, so I'll start by asking, how did your studies as a pianist lead you to a research thesis focused on the intersection of music, musicians, and and politics. It's not the first thing that um, uh, that I would think a musician would go to. Yeah, no, that's true because a lot of dissertations tend to be, you know, a new analysis of this obscure piano work that nobody's ever analyzed before, and and it can get really into the weeds. But I think I've always been a very politically engaged person, mm-hmm. and it was just realizing that I could actually incorporate that part of my interest into this type of scholarly work, then there's no contradiction there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of musicians feel like we have to keep that part of ourselves separate from what we present on stage. So back in 2009, I was in my first year at USC. Obama had just taken office. Um, so this was April. So he'd been in office for a couple months. Mm-hmm. And Christian Zimmerman, really famous pianist, won the Chopin competition. Uh, at, I think at the time he was probably the youngest person to have won it. Mm-hmm. That's changed. But he gave a recital in Los Angeles. And before the last piece, the second half was all Polish music. He's Polish himself. Before the last piece, he turned to the audience and he gave this speech explaining why he was not ever probably coming back to the United States. And it was all sort of about foreign policy at that point, which was about constructing a missile shield in in Poland. And he had some big problems with that. A bunch of people in the audience tried to shout him down. A bunch of people walked out. A bunch of people applauded. But I've always kind of retained that memory. And that was one of the first things I started connecting the dots with that I could actually write something about this that that would be relevant today. When I was growing up, I didn't really even think about using music or my talent um, to make a statement, to make a political or social statement coming from coming from a nation in the middle east um you you innately come with this history of baggage of dictatorship 
and that anything you say or do, um, whether it is in your private home to publicly on the bus or on the stage, can and will be used against you. That fear, for better or worse, I think to in a, on a certain level lives within me. Um, and it's something that I've always had to fight because I, I, especially now, especially with everything that we're going through in the world, in our world, it is a time to, to stand up and make a change, make, make real change in our own way. There are constraints, I yes. think, on a lot of the industry because you know, classical music is not hugely profitable. It relies a lot on on donations, on big big donors, on corporate sponsorships. Typically on, conservative donors. Right. Yes. Right. And and so I think there is a big fear that if you start to get into that arena and you upset somebody, mm-hmm. that that same thing can happen. I think in re- in recent years especially, I, I think the idea that getting into this I don't know what you want to call it. Getting into the arena, mm-hmm. let's say, doesn't necessarily have a huge downside, but can have a really big upside to it. Um, I think just just a few weeks ago, when the Pulitzers came out, um, the Pulitzer Prize in Music this year mm-hmm. went to an opera about the Central Park Five, and. From what I've read, um, the the current president also makes an appearance in that opera. It's it's a directly. I mean, it's you you can't really get more political than that at this moment. And I think that just the idea that there are all these dangers, Mm -hmm. I think, can be offset if people also see the potential for no, not just. Oh, because I want to win a Pulitzer, mm-hmm. but because there's actually there's a desire for that in the audience mm-hmm. that people people actually want something that they can relate to, something that you know, something that they can feel represented by. I think there's also this idea, maybe, that you know, the, the classical music is different. Mm-hmm. That it's somehow more, uh, I don't know, refined, more that that it should be immune to these sort of petty squabbles of the outside world, sort of this classic ivory tower mm-hmm. type thing. I'm at fault for that as well, by the way. I'm I'm a hundred percent at fault for um, holding classical music to a far greater esteem than than other musical genres and it's but only that's been- what we're kind of brought up in right that's the way the music history is taught that's the way even uh music music theory right the way that we teach music theory is like well classical music is just super complex and everything else is not <laughs> <laughs> so if you like you know if you want your baby to be smart play mozart play mozart <laughs> Don't play Eminem. I mean, that's probably... <laughs> well, for, for different reasons. For different um, reasons. One of my favorite symphonies of all time, and I, many people across the globe share this, um, 
is Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Nine, but not just because of the fact that it's Beethoven or the fact that um, the the music is just incredible, but because of its vast political entanglements. And we would need a whole other podcast to discuss the usage of the symphony over the last 120, 150 years. But I think um, Eduardo Galliano from his book Mirrors says it best when he writes, Bismarck proclaimed the ninth an inspiration for the German race. Uh, Bakunin heard it as the music of anarchy. Engels declared it, declared it would become the hymn of humanity. Lenin thought it more revolutionary than international. Von Karajan conducted it for the Nazis, and later on he used it to consecrate the unity of free Europe. The ninth accompanied Japanese kamikazes who died for their emperor, as well as the soldiers who gave their lives fighting against all empires. It was sung by those resisting the German blitzkrieg and hummed by Hitler himself, who in a rare attack of modesty said that Beethoven was the true Führer. Paul Robinson sang it against racism, and the racists of South Africa used it as a soundtrack of apartheid propaganda. To the strains of the Ninth, the Berlin Wall went up in 1961, and to the strains of the Ninth, the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. I don't think you can get, um, you can find another piece like Beethoven Ninth that has been so politicized. I think the problem there is the ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And that's not, you know, obviously that's not his fault. It was a much different climate than than it is today. We don't generally have to worry about losing our heads over saying the wrong the wrong thing or losing our, you know, maybe in his case losing our our patronage. But now that we do have that option, why not be clear about what you mean? Why not be clear about the causes that you support? Why not? Um, and again, right? I, I sent you this lecture by Jeffrey Kahane where he's where he addresses this specifically and and points out that the word in the Ode to Joy that the time and again Beethoven puts a musical emphasis on is all yes all not not even all men. Right, which I suppose you could translate it as, but all people, mm-hmm. all is the emphasis, and that, uh, yeah, there's all of is pretty unambiguous. But again, at the time, right, that this was not that long after the words "all men" mm-hmm. are created equal. Yes, and we know that that didn't mean all men. No, it probably didn't even mean you know didn't even mean all white men because you could only vote if you owned property for a while there but it certainly didn't mean any not white men and so now that we have the the freedom is such a loaded word but now that we have the freedom to actually say what we mean we should do that so that that we can make sure that this is not whatever it is that we're creating or composing 
probably won't you know rise to the level of popularity of Beethoven's Ninth, but we might as well be clear about what it is that we mean. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Because Beethoven's Ninth stamped a moment in history when when it became popular, and it was continually used because of the 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 fervor and 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 the emotions it it riled up in people and should we dial back the number of times we are we perform beethoven's ninth beethoven's ninth and replace it with someone who is composing music telling the the stories and the lives and and the I mean there's a there's a whole big conversation about that right now because it's the 250th um you know and uh, whatever birthday anniversary of Beethoven everybody is programming these Beethoven retrospectives and like let's do all the Beethoven symphonies and so there's a a big conversation around that about yeah okay 250 but it's not like any other year that we have a shortage of Beethoven. And that does take up space that that can go somewhere else. It can go to, you know, it can go to female composers. It can go to, you know, uh, non-white composers. Mm-hmm. It can go a lot of places. But I think the model of we want to get people to buy the tickets mm-hmm. – and people will buy the tickets for the things that they know is again, it goes back to that kind of, I guess, fear of just, just bombing, just failure, just not being able to justify your existence. And so we go back to the familiar favorites. I don't, I don't know if it's, I'm sorry. I, that was a long way to go around your original question, which is, should we uh, it doesn't have to be either or right? I, no I it can be both it can be both yeah. we, you can't you can pay homage to the past while appreciate while um uh, accepting and moving forth with the future but you can't do that unless you make an effort to dial down the need to to promote to promote quote unquote bums and seats performances. Yeah. Because at this point, certain operas, certain um uh pieces of music uh have have become that are popular because they they bring people to uh to the performances. Why aren't we doing more as a community to make new composers just as popular? That's yeah, my question. I there, I, no, I think that's a really good question. I think it's a question that a lot of people just don't engage with at all. Mm-hmm. But it really rests on something that I don't even know if it's true. I don't know if you actually will sell more tickets um, just doing the same things that people know over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um Probably because people aren't trying it, so we don't know yet. We don't know if there is anything. Of course, I'm oversimplifying. Yes. I don't think we fully know if that's true. I think people take it kind of as gospel that that's the case. But I think that there is uh, there is a an appetite for yeah for new works that speak to the moment, mm-hmm. and I think that if you just think that 
the only way that you can get people to come to concerts is by giving them something they already know, Mm -hmm. then I think you're also kind of treating your audience like they're morons. A couple months ago, you introduced me to a series of pieces by a composer, uh, your friend and and colleague, um, Mm -hmm. uh, Joel Thompson. And at the time, I listened to them, and although I was moved, it didn't have the same effect as it has listening to them again these last two weeks. So... Joel is just a fabulous composer. Um, I met him at Aspen Music Festival three three years ago, and uh, I I got to actually play a couple of his art songs, um, which he just has a a real knack for setting text, and you know he writes with really luscious harmonies and. Um, it's very satisfying to play as a pianist. Um, but he he has this work called Seven Last Words of the Unarmed that he wrote, I want to say like 2015, maybe 2016, a, a few years ago now. And, and he has basically taken uh, the last words of, of seven unarmed black men killed in America and set them to music in really really powerful way and and you know the fact that it's still fresh and relevant speaks to just how really dire and really really broken the situation is right now the fact that george floyd before his death he exclaimed the words i can't breathe 16 times and having listened to this a second time and over the last couple of weeks with the backdrop of the George Floyd murder and the protests that in, that have ensued, to think that Joel wrote a piece called I Can't Breathe, Eric Garner, about a man who spoke those words 11 times before his death on Staten Island in 2014. I'm getting choked up just thinking about it because this wasn't two weeks ago with George Floyd. Yeah. This was written in 2014. Yeah. And it's still, it's still true today. It's still still, true today. It's still happening literally right now. This work should not be current. It should be an artifact, but it is, it's, it's haunting that you have the repetition of those exact words six years later. And it's, I mean, it's, you can't, uh, it's unambiguous. You can't hear this, this piece of music and not be, you know, I mean, frankly, indicted. Yes. (laughs) All of us. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you're white, brown, any, any shade, any does not matter. It's an indictment of, of our society as a whole. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's why it's a really important piece of music. One thing 
I think we experience far too often in the concert hall is comfort and familiarity and even <laughs> entertainment that we go to a concert to be, you know, basically entertained. Mm -hmm. Some, some people will say, you know, I go for, for deeper soul fulfilling reasons than that. But when it comes down to it, a lot of the time, our experience is this familiar repertoire. It's of, it's an extremely, I think we have to just say it's an extremely white space. It's an extremely, not just the composers that are played, not just um, the whiteness of it, the maleness of the repertoire, mm -hmm. but of the audience. Yes. And a, I think it's an important piece because you can't sit there and listen to it and not feel challenged. Mm -hmm. And it is entirely possible to 100% agree, even before this particular moment, um, when public opinion seems to be moving. Yes. Even before this, it was entirely possible to to agree that, yes, I'm on the side of Black Lives Matter and uh, to, to be sort of, yeah, I, I hate to use just black and white liberal, but you know, to be sort of liberal on this issue and to be aware of it mm -hmm. and to be aware that it's a problem and to know the statistics, but you can basically organize your life so that you never have to confront this issue at all. Personally, we've designed our, you know, sort of our, our world so that we actually don't have to, to engage with that on an intimate level. And we don't have to experience that at all as generally consumers of classical music do not have to really confront that it's it's hard to to sit there and listen to his music and not in a bad way yeah no it should be it, it should it, be. it should be yeah. hard he makes you he makes you think uh uh the the it, it's one of the few pieces i've i thank you for introducing it to me by the way it's one of the few pieces i've listened to over the last five years, um, this includes Giancarlo Minotti's The Console. It's one of the few pieces that I've listened to that truly encaptures um, pain on a different level. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 uh, it makes you feel human because you can't, you can't declare to be human if you can't feel on that level, for better or for worse. Um, I highly encourage anyone who is who listens to this uh, podcast to, as Ben said, go out on YouTube, search Joel's name, search his music, and listen to it. I'll be putting links up as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean... <laughs> If we want people to come back, if we want people to engage with us, mm -hmm. um, I, I think particularly right now, people don't just want to come to a concert and hear something pretty mm -hmm. and enjoy it and go home. Yeah. 
or maybe that some people probably do actually, I should generalize, but <laughs> we should be challenging our audience. And in some ways we should be radicalizing our audience in ways that I think are not, I don't want to say are not possible through other mediums, but we have this platform, we have people's attention when in a way that you don't in other ways in day-to-day life, because our attention is so fragmented these days and, and everybody's, you know, especially with our devices, I'm guilty of this too, right? Mm -hmm. You read something and then you go to the next, you go for the next uh, notification or the next um, hit of just that engagement with the next app, with the next update, with whatever. And in a lot of ways, when people come into the concert hall, we generally have people's undivided attention, mm-hmm. um, aside from the nappers and the texters. <laughs> or the or the yawners. Yeah, right. But we have a platform and we have people for at least until intermission, at least for about 45 minutes. Yes. And, and maybe even two hours. We have that platform. And if we're not using that. If we're to, not engaging them. Yeah. 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 Then, then what are we, what are we doing? What's our purpose then? A genuine change must first come from within the individual. Only then can one attempt to make a significant contribution to humanity. The Dalai Lama. Thank you for listening.